Our scripture passage comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, and then verses 12 through 14. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, and then again at 12 through 14. This is the word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This is the reading of the Lord. That's Easter. Um, do you guys know what Easter means? Uh, nowadays, I, I, I have no idea where this came from. Um, Easter has something to do with a bunny and hard-boiled eggs that is hidden somewhere under a bush. And I don't know why churches do this. Um, when I was a kid, I hated this because <laughs> I don't like hard-boiled eggs. And I was no good at finding some weird colored egg under some bush. And I had no idea what it had to do with God or church, or Jesus, um, but that's what people think about Easter, but Easter actually is an old German word, and it means new life, and when they meant new life, you know what they meant? They meant resurrection life, that's what we're talking about. Easter is about resurrection, it's about new life from the dead, a life that can never die again, a kind of new life that doesn't just begin after you die, and then you're raised again but new life, which is gifted to us now because this has already started. It's already started. And that's why Christians always, we worship on Sunday. You know that? You know why? That's why we worship on Sunday? Because new life started on Sunday. So every Sunday is a resurrection celebration day. Every Sunday is a day we taste new life. New life, the kind of life they can't die. All right, that's what we're talking about. And, of course, so every Sunday is actually resurrection, Easter Sunday, um, but today is the one. <laughs> and um, so it, it's good that we will um, get, to, get to hear a message about that. Um, for those of you in, this, in, in the English-speaking congregation, we're, going to, um, we're actually starting a new series, a new series, and I thought it would be appropriate to start the series on resurrection, that we should start a series on resurrection on this day, don't you think? And we're going to work our way through this very, very um, profound and important text of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And today I have a message for you called um, History and Real Hope. Um, the, this, this is a series, we're going to call it Real Hope. Uh, it very much is different. When our culture talks about hope, you know what we mean is somewhere in the future, possibly, It'll get good. <laughs> That's what we mean by hope. And what is it based on? You know what it's based on? 
wishful thinking. <laughs> in our society, when we say hope, that's what we mean. We mean sometime in the future, it'll be better than how much it is so crappy right now. All right? Uh, whether you're talking about your own personal life, how bad it is, or our society, or whatever it is, hope sometime in the future it can get better. And it's based on nothing more than wishing it. That's it. Um, and so whenever there are various different worldviews that say, in the future, it'll be better. <laughs> Somehow it'll be better. That's what they mean by hope. And it's always based upon some kind of wishful thinking. Or the more sophisticated word that our society uses, myth. It's based upon some myth. Or when they're being really cynical, it's just wishful thinking, guys. And our society, as you guys mostly know, since you live right in the midst of this, is our society is secular. And secular means that we know what's real. We, we live in history, not in myth. We know what's real. And the religions, they believe in a hope. But it's not real. We live in the real world based on history, based on science. They live in a kind of dreamland, and they have a hope based upon myth, which is their religion. And today, I want to challenge all that. That is what our society believes. Maybe that's what some of you believe. Today, I want to show you right here from God's Word, I want to challenge all that, a message called History and Real Hope. In three parts, part one, religion and myth versus history and reality. I just kind of gave you that thing. History and reality? That's what our society believes in. We're smart, secular people based upon history. It's on evidence. It's on logic, on science, history, reality. And what these Christians and, well, you know, we, we don't want to be too rude about it, but the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists and everybody else, they believe in myth, religion and myth. And um, I want to challenge that. That's part one. Part two, the resurrection and history. And in part two, what I want to do is to let you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is firmly in history, not myth. Which is another way of saying it really happened. Which is another way of saying, in part two, I'm going to give you a case for practically proving that it really happened. Now, how about that? Okay? By history. Now, obviously, we can't prove, prove, prove. None of us were actually there. We didn't actually get to touch the Jesus and see him watch the fish as it was read earlier from the Gospel of Luke. So in that sense, we can't prove. But using history, using the canons of history, I'm going to offer you something that we're darn near close to proof. Hmm. Okay? And in part three, I want to talk about this thing, the importance of real hope. Real hope, not wishful thinking. That's part three. Real hope, not wishful thinking. So let me just start with this. Religion and myth. I already gave you a... Um, a, uh, an introduction of how our society approaches what they consider history. History is something that scholars have studied. <laughs> history has evidence. You can go back, there's some kind of archaeological evidence. There's documentary evidence. There's real eyewitnesses. Real people were there. There's like, they are not liars. Um, and they have recorded that this thing actually happened. It's in importance. That's history. Um, myth is there was a guy named Zeus, and then he, you know, he shot lightning bolts down, and there were no eyewitnesses. These are just stories. That's myth. You get the difference? There's a big difference. 
Um, there are stories that are a little bit, little bit more modern. There's a basketball player, and he was so awesome. He could like, like this, and he was so super duper fast, and then he would jump up, and he'd jump higher than Michael Jordan, and he had eyes in the back that said, better than Magic Johnson, and in our era, we called him like Harry the Legend. Okay, is that history? No, it's called myth. It's a story that people say, but nobody, you can't. Maybe if you, could, if, you, if you were a scholar, you can go to that neighborhood and you can look for real witnesses. And they could tell you, that, well, I saw him jump higher than Michael Jordan. Did you measure it? Was it really higher than Michael? Well, did, how many times did it happen? Oh, I think it was higher. And, and, then you, and then it's a couple of biased people. Like his uncle. His uncle says it. You know what that is? That's all myth. Uh, that's all myth. It's legendary. And that's modern. Okay, that's like it happens around today. And this kind of thing stuff happens all throughout well, human history. People like to tell myths. And especially about things a little more important than basketball, right? Um, but this is the, the, the prejudice, and I want to call it prejudice, that in our society, they think that if you believe in a religion, if you believe in a religion, it's only based on myth. Now, I want to I talk about two things. They're kind of like, the word religion is a very, very slippery word. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that. Um, you guys know what a religion is? Do you know what a religion is? Probably the definition you have of religion is one of these two possible definitions, but they're not exactly the same. And I want to offer you, there's more than two uh, def, you know, use, but these are two very common ones. Right? So let me offer you the first one. The first one is religion is that which religious people believe. In other words, you believe in you know, Hinduism, or you believe in Christianity. There is an or- organized institution, and then you do certain kinds of rituals and sacrifices, and there are certain kinds of doctrines, and you believe in these things, and nobody can prove it. Nobody can prove any of these things. And so, so that's why. And then there's another set of people that go, I don't believe in a religion. They don't believe in one of those, these, these well-known religions. And since they're not sure what they believe, they call themselves agnostic. Some of them will just straight out say, I'm an atheist. Or some will just say, I'm, I'm just secular, which is another way of just saying it's only of this world, no supernatural claims outside, it's only here, and they will say, I am not religious. You get the difference? <laughs> there are people who believe in something that have claims, maybe a book that had, they practice some kind of like rituals, and all they think they believe is you cannot prove it, it's based on myth. That's a religion. But I'm not in that category. I'm secular. I'm agnostic. I'm not religious. Okay? That's the most common understanding of religion in our society today. And, um, and it's based on this whole idea. Science, the, the provable, historical, it's very this-worldly. You notice it? it? It very much cares about show me, prove me, give me the evidence is it real? And real always means naturalistic. No supernatural. Nothing beyond the natural. Show me the evidence. It's naturalistic. And um, that's what it means. And so they, they, they don't usually say this, okay? People who, you know, maybe you're one of the people. You're, if you're an agnostic, secular kind of person, you don't usually say this out loud, but this is probably what you think, right? Which is, I'm, I'm, kind of like a reasoned person, and I weigh the evidence, those people 
have to believe in something which takes some kind of a leap of faith, and the leap of faith is not based on evidence, it's based on myth. They believe on a myth. So that's one definition of religion. It's the very most, probably the most common definition of the way people use religion today. And I want to say it's really problematic. <laughs> it's a real, the fact that this is the most common understanding of religion today says how deeply like, biased our society is because this understanding is totally front-loaded. I'm a reasoned person <laughs> that uses evidence. Those people are all just biased. <laughs> Faith is something that you have to do after you commit some kind of intellectual suicide. <laughs> you have to like basically turn your brain off to believe this stuff. But my brain is on. <laughs> that's why I'm agnostic and that's why I'm secular. That's, they don't actually say it that way because that's too rude. <laughs> but that's what they think. And of course you know that's what they think because they, it comes out in all kinds of different ways. All right? And so, as long as people think that the secular position is the most reasoned position, it's the most kind of like strongly evidenced position, every other position is sort of like a child's position, and that is so arrogant. And it's wrong. That's the thing I want to show you. It's objectively wrong. So that's the, that's the first. So if you're in this camp of the secular, I, I want to press you, I, and I hope you don't, you're not too offended that I just said that you're arrogant, but you are. You're just, it's, that's arrogant. Because everybody else has reasons too. And they have certain kinds of evidences. And certainly today I want to present you some of that. Okay? Now there's a second definition of religion, which is I think a much more useful definition of religion. And in other words, they're, they're kind of bleed into each other. The more kind of broader usage of, of religion is you have a worldview. You have a certain understanding of what is human, what is right and wrong, what is eternal, what is meaningful, what is, what is false, what is true. And you know what? Nobody can prove all 100% of it. Some of it is based on evidence, and some of them you cannot, you cannot prove. Let me tell you an interesting little story. Um, my family, we just came back on, um, from vacation, and... Um, we, you know, as you guys know, you have to, it's hard to get like a, unless you got a lot of money or something like this, you can't get this like a nonstop one-way flight from the other side of the country. And so we had a, a layover, and on the second leg of that layover, you know, we, we were in Southwest, and I was really dumb. I didn't check us in on time, so we, we were at like C30-something, which is like, that just means you're at the back end, and you're going to sit in the middle seat. At least that's what I thought, okay? So we got all split up. Eventually, later on, my kid said, you could have sat next to mom that, you know, if you didn't came. But like, I thought if we are going to split up, I don't, I don't want to sit in the back. I hate sitting in the back. Okay, So I just sat in, in the middle seat in the front. And, um, and th th there was this older lady with a book. I was like, cool, older lady with a the book. They're very nice, and she's not going to talk too much. Okay? She's going to read a book. And then there was a younger woman with a book. I was like, oh, good. <laughs> she's going to be quiet, read her book. I'll sit right there, okay? And so I just sat right there. And, um, but then I looked over at the, the younger woman's book. I had read this book. <laughs> I was like, oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I've read this book, and, um, and it's a good book. <laughs> it's a smart book. And so I said, how do you like that book? <laughs> oh, that was a problem, okay? <laughs> turns, out, turns out this young woman... Um, it was written by David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times. You know what she said? She said, 
I haven't fully read the book, but I took the class taught by David Brooks at Yale. <laughs> and I was like, no kidding. <laughs> Turns out she just had just graduated from Yale, and she was trying to pick between law schools that she had gotten into. She had gotten waitlisted at Stanford and had already gotten into Harvard. I was like, wow, tough choices there. <laughs> anyway, um, I guess the reason I'm just telling you the story is for the next two hours, as soon as she found that I was a pastor, I didn't tell her I was a pastor, because usually as soon as you say, I was going to be like, okay, as soon as I tell her I'm a pastor, that'll end the conversation. <laughs> she'll, be, she'll go, you're a pastor. That'll be the end of that, and then I'll, it'll get quiet. Then, I'll, then I can go to sleep or you know, watch my movie. <laughs> but... Um, but as soon as I told her it was a pastor, she got more energetic. <laughs> she got more energetic, and she, she went right after Leviticus. Isn't it teach in Leviticus that, that, um, that you know, we should execute homosexuals? And then how could you believe in that? You know, all you Christians, are, you know, you're bad because you believe in that. I mean, she went right after that. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is going to be a really fun, I'm on vacation. <laughs> I'm going, I'm on vacation. Oh, gosh. And she, as you can imagine, a girl graduating from Yale who got into Harvard Law School, she was smart. <laughs> oh, my gosh, she was smart. And all of a sudden, I was like, mm, watch a movie. And then, oh, like, just like, game on. <laughs> I was like, oh, gosh. <laughs> I was like, whoa, wake up. <laughs> you are being called to be an ambassador for Christ right now. <laughs> That's what it was like. But she went right away. We have a right to choose our own life. And, and um, if you are against homosexuality, how can you say there, there's harm? And I was like, wow. You know what she was telling me? She was telling me her religion. You get it? She, was believe, she's, she told me one of her doctrines. We have a right to choose our own life. And if you just have sex with somebody else, whoever you want to have sex with... Then, and you, you like this person, how can you say there's any harm involved? But she has no idea that she has a whole religiously, doctrinally defined vision of harm. Pure naturalism. No violence, no harm. But there's something called like a definition of marriage or an understanding of, of like male and female and a whole understanding of family and society. And I try to present that to her, but she kept saying, you still haven't shown me how there's harm. You can't, still haven't shown me how there's harm. You still haven't shown me. She said that four times over the next two hours. Because she had a total, fully religious understanding based upon faith that her doctrine that you get to decide what is right and you get to decide what is harm, it was a pure clash of religion to religion. That's really what it was. She had a religion, and I have a religion. We have a worldview. She believes in it by faith. I believe in mine by faith. And she was arguing it by reason, and I was arguing it by reason, she even said that to me. I've never met a person who, could, who knew the Bible as well as you did. It would make a case. Of course, I absolutely did not convince her. She was, she, was, she was no way. She was like, there was no way I could believe a God that believes what you claimed, even if it's intelligent. And, and, and this is what I said to her. I said, then really, there's no place for God in your life. <laughs> because... You're the only one that gets to define what is being God. See? <laughs> That's religion. That's religion. You see the difference? That's religion. That's religion on religion. Not reason 
against myth. <laughs> no. That's just reasons versus reasons. Religion bumping up against religion, but she doesn't see it that way. She thinks she's reasoned, but she's religious. She's highly, incredibly religious. Okay? That's, um, now let me get into the Bible. <laughs> I don't usually talk this long before I actually start getting into the Bible. And usually when, I'm, when I go to different churches, I'm usually like, get to the Bible, man. Get to the Bible. <laughs> it's like, I want to hear the Bible, not just your opinions. And I don't, so apologize for that because I, I need to frame this. Because if I don't give you this background, you can't understand the importance of this passage. Here's what it says. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel... I preached to you which I received. For I delivered to you, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance. First importance. You know what he's saying there? Absolutely supremely important. Of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. She didn't like that I constantly, constantly go back to scripture. In accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he goes on to say, there's Cephas, that's Peter. Then the other apostles, 500 other people. Eyewitnesses. You know what he's talking about there? History. Not myth. And it's incredibly important that he is offering you this thing. He is squarely talking about something that happened in history and something which you can examine. It's an absolutely historical claim. When you say there are 500 witnesses, they were there, they saw it. You can, it, it can be examined as a historical claim. It's absolutely important because Christianity is squarely in history. And the claim that is made in history of first importance, what is he saying? He's saying, I'll give you the ten laws. I'll give you the five pillars. I'll give you the wisdom that will unlock your life and the secrets that will give you the power to be your, to be your best self, which is what you know, all, all the self-help gurus like to say, which is another form of religion, by the way. That's not what it says. What is of first importance is something that's happened. Something that was done for you. Something which changes everything. And there's evidence for it. Okay? Now let's get to that evidence. Part two. The resurrection and history. There are... I'm I'm, going to draw from this reading. Uh, Some of you, a number of you know that um, we just went through... I just did a six-week seekers study, and we, invite, we invited people from outside of our church who, who don't believe in Jesus, but they're seeking. They're, they want to consider the claims. And in week two, I gave them this reading, Evidence for the Resurrection of Christ from the Handbook of Christian Apologetics by Peter Kreeft and Father Ronald Tassella. These guys are actually Catholics, but the reading is superb. I found this on the... I actually own this book. But um, they have a portion of this book right there on the internet, free for everybody to get. You can go get this. Nine pages. So I can't give you everything that's in these nine pages, but I can give you some of the, some of the good, good the juicy stuff, okay? <laughs> and if you're interested, I'll, I'll, I'll share it, and you can go find this yourself. And if you want nine pages, which will help kind of like blow your mind, <laughs> nine pages. Check it out. Now, here is some of the highlights. There are only five possibilities to explain historically what happened there after the crucifixion. This thing called the resurrection. Christians have this incredible claim. 
They have this leader, this guy that they call the Savior, the Christ. And he rose again from the dead to this thing called resurrection, which means he can't ever die again. That's, that's a pretty wild claim. So most people today who consider them secular agnostic, they just go, or you know, they don't believe in Jesus, they're saying, well, I doubt that happened. I doubt that happened. Now, if you think that no miracles can ever happen, that's religion. You can't prove that. You, you can't prove that. So that's just a total bias. But if you're open-minded and said, what happened? And let's look at the historical evidence for it. Well, scholars, from a historical point of view, there are only five possibilities. And they go on to say something like this. We're not talking about possibilities like, like Martians came down <laughs> and stole the body of Jesus away. and whoop, 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 whoop. I mean, like that's not history. You understand? That's called science fiction. <laughs> Fiction, like, you know, some, some goofy thing that we can just make up out, out, out of nowhere. But history is something that you can examine. You can look at the evidence for. And there are only five even candidates for historical explanation. And here they are. All right? So just listen. Yeah, there are only five. There's not seven, ten, or a hundred. There's only five. Here they are. Um, and I'm going to give them to you in the order that I think is easiest to deal with. Uh, so number one, Jesus didn't actually die. <laughs> so this is, in, in, the, in this reading by Peter Kraft and his friend Ronald Teselli, they call this the swoon theory, the fainting theory. Jesus fainted. <laughs> he was on the cross, fainted. They thought he died, but he didn't actually die. Okay, it's the fainting theory of the swoon theory. He didn't actually die. Number two, Jesus did die, but the apostles were deceived. They call this the hallucination theory. Hallucination apostles. They, they actually believed something, that they saw something, but they were just, you know, they, 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 what they believed was wrong. So the apostles were deceived. That's possibly number two. Possibly number three, the apostles were deceivers. Jesus actually died. They knew he died. Somehow they must have hidden the body or something. They knew he died, and they lied about it. This is known as the conspiracy theory. Everybody knows it's not true, but a group of people get together to go out and tell you something that is not true. That's called the conspiracy. They conspire to tell you something false. Conspiracy theory. So we got number one, the fainting theory or the swoon theory. Number two, the hallucination theory. Number three, the conspiracy theory. Number four, this is the most sophisticated one. Right? Number four is the most sophisticated one. Is It's a myth. It's a myth. In other words, over time, it didn't really happen, but stories built up over time which said it happened, which is, it's, it's like legend. You see what I'm saying? It's sort of like the, the basketball guy who can jump better than Michael Jordan that you've never seen. But enough people say it, and then some people start to believe it. It's like a legend. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible is myths and legends. That's the most sophisticated version. And then possibility number five is this. It actually happened. <laughs> Jesus actually rose from the dead, and he's changed everything. And the Christians are actually right. Those are the five possibilities. Now, again, I'm not going to, they, they, you know, if you read through this, there's nine arguments against the swoon theory. There's like six arguments against this one. There's, I mean, it's really concise. 
And they could have written whole books on it, and people have written whole books on this. But I'm giving this, that you can get it in nine pages. But let me just give you some of the highlights. Um, number one, I think the swoon theory is completely ridiculous. Let me give you a couple points. Um, if, if, if a Roman soldier lets somebody get away, <laughs> you know what happens to them? Execution. You're, you have to, you are in charge of this prisoner. If you don't get your job done, in other words, if you are, if you're in charge of the crucifixion and that guy don't die, you know what happens to you? You die. <laughs> You know what the likelihood of a Roman soldier making sure a guy didn't die is? It's almost none. How about that? It says right there in the Bible that the soldier stuck a spear right into Jesus' side and blood and water fold out. You know what that means? What that means is his lung has collapsed. His lung has collapsed. It's a sign of death. So it isn't just like, uh, he seems like he's dead. Let's, let's go for lunch. They make sure. Why? Because you, otherwise you're dead. You get it? So, like, the swoon theory is completely, I think, ridiculous. Now, just think a little bit about this, too. Let's just say he wasn't actually dead. They took him off from the cross. We're talking, there's no modern medicine now. Their rusty nails went in, and somehow they got these nails out, and he got punctured in, in his side, and, you know, hopefully he'll just get better, and, and then there's going to be a search, all of the Jewish authorities, all the Roman authorities, then these Christians are going to claim, he rose again, he rose again. You know what's going to happen? There's going to be an absolutely a huge investigation by all the powers. All the Jewish powers, they want him dead. All the Roman powers, they want him dead. All the most powerful people want him dead. So then you're going to have a guy who, with some nails in his hand, no modern, and he's kind of half dead, and somehow he's going to you know, go out there and start a whole new movement to start a whole new religion, right? Not. He died. He died. He definitely died. <laughs> he definitely died. So let's just get rid of that theory. Boom. Number two. The apostles were um, deceived. Hallucination theory. Hallucination theory. Okay. If one person sees something that they think that they saw and you know it's kind of fantastical, you're like, okay, you're, you're kind of in you know, la-la land, a little crazy. <laughs> if two people say that they saw it, you're going, hmm, that's kind of strange, but two people are now crazy. <laughs> Three people saw it. Now it's getting problematic. Three people saw it. Each of the three persons are not whacked. <laughs> They're not disturbed. Three people starts getting to be evidence. Now, let's get, it gets even more difficult than that. 500 people. 500 people don't have a hallucination, especially if they saw it all at the same time. We were there. There he was. And then he like went up into the sky with the angels. That was crazy. I was there. I, 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 I saw him eat the fish. I saw him talk. I, he looked great. He, he was amazing. I mean, he was shiny. It was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. I saw the angel. It was crazy. 500. All at the same time. It's very, very difficult to claim it's an hallucination. Very, very difficult. Huh? 
Let's go, let's just go to number three. Now, because when you get to number three, the conspiracy theory, as soon as I give you some of the evidence for conspiracy theory, it blows away. I mean, it just, if you have any doubts about the, the hallucination theory and the swoon theory, it just completely knocks those out the wall. Here's the, conspir- here, here's the thing. There's a series of things that, you, that are happening in this historical moment. Okay, one is there's all these eyewitnesses, incredibly important, 500 eyewitnesses right there in the, in the Bible. There are other things that are there. Are. There is an empty tomb. There is no corpse that's been recovered. You guys ever watch CSI? <laughs> you guys watch CSI? There's no body. You know what that means? That guy's not going to be convicted. <laughs> If there's no body, you can't get convicted because there's no murder. You get it? If there's no body, how can you say there's no? That's, that's a serious problem in history. Empty tomb is a very, very serious problem. Here's other problems with the empty tomb. There's a big, fat rock over the tomb, and there were guards. There were guards. So you think the guards pushed the, uh, the, the guy and let him go? Why would they do that? Because if they did that, guess what? Death. Nobody would do that. And here, so when you put all that together, all the Romans want to make sure Jesus is dead. All the Jews want to make sure Jesus is dead. They're the most powerful. They have the, they have the weapons. They have the military. When all the weight of the government comes on top of your head, guess what? Conspiracies just break apart. And then here's the other thing. So, let's say they, all 500 people, they were in on it. Or heck, even just the, these early disciples, they were all in on it. It's a super-duper conspiracy. They're all going to hold on to this lie to the bitter end. Let me tell you, it was very, very bitter. They all died, except for one. At least among the apostles, they all died in a gruesome way. And if you weren't sure if they could be cowardly, guess what? Just a couple chapters before the crucifixion, they were all cowardly. When they came to you know, arrest Jesus, they all ran away like chickens. But somehow, now, we're going to crucify you. We're going to crucify you if you keep, you know, proclaiming this gospel stuff. Well, then crucify me, because it happened. So if they're holding on to a lie, what kind of a crazy conspiracy? Who dies for a lie? And so, you know what? All it would take to make you start to question the conspiracy is one guy gives it up. One. All it takes is one. One guy goes, oh, no crucifixion. It was a lie. <laughs> I, I, you know, Peter made me say this. And Peter is like a, a bad dude. I don't want to like cross Peter. Okay, so Peter made me say this, but it didn't really happen. And it probably, you know, like Thomas, doubting Thomas, he, he's kind of like that. He would have probably given it up, but he didn't. So at the very least, and then there's something else. A whole new movement starts. This changes the world. So, at the very least, something very serious happened there. So, you know, you know what secular historians, when they come to this thing, they, they call it the Christ event. That's actually, that, that's actually what they call it. <laughs> they call it the Christ event. What they say is, um, don't know if he actually rose from the dead. Something very serious happened there because these guys who were cowards, all of a sudden they all went to gruesome horrible deaths, and they all claimed that he went to life. And then it started to change the whole, it started to change the, their world upside down, eventually conquered the Roman Empire, and it's still changing the world today. They call that, historians call that the Christ event. They don't actually want to say, well, mm, the historical evidence kind of looks like 
maybe a real miracle happened. Let me go to number four. This is the most sophisticated version. It goes something like this. A myth can start to develop after the event has happened. It didn't, you know, he didn't actually rose from the dead. But, you know, many years later, you know, these stories start to arise and people start to believe it. And then a myth and legends can develop. So this was more believable about maybe 200 years ago. Because where do we get the stuff from the Bible? So about 200 years ago, people believed that, like, say, this book, 1 Corinthians, is written like 150 years after the event. You know what? Nobody believes that. Nobody believes that anymore. All, this is the most examined ancient book there ever is and ever will be. All the people who absolutely hate Christianity, they are against Christianity, has studied this thing and has studied the evidence for it to death. And every single generation, there's a new scholar that says, new evidence has come up. The Bible is false. It comes up all the time. They're best sellers all the time. All the most anti-Christian scholars, nobody thinks that this book, 1 Corinthians, was written that long. You know when they think it was written? They think it was written probably within about 30 years, maybe, maybe, more like 20-something years after the death and resurrection of Christ. You know why that's problematic? You can't have a myth or a legend 20 years after an event because there have been 500 people that were there. When a myth and a legend has to arise, it takes time. And you have to have people, and all the people who can refute your myth and legend have to be dead. <laughs> they have to be dead. But if there's 500 people who are there, and then when those 500 people, they start talking, and then you get 1,000 and 2,000 and 10,000 people who are connected to those people, they're saying, you know what, I know this person who talked to that person. I know he's, he's not a liar. He's the most skeptical guy I ever met. And he talked to the eyewitness. He, he questioned the eyewitness like crazy. And then he ended up believing in Jesus. That's completely crazy. When you start getting that kind of, of evidence going on, you can't dismiss it as a myth because it's not a myth. <laughs> it's not a myth. And that's the claim of what they think the Bible is. But even the most anti-Christian scholars say it can't be the case. Almost everything in the... In the Everything in the, practically the whole New Testament is written during the lifetime still of these eyewitnesses. The whole New most of the vast majority of the New Testament is written within the next 30 to 40 years after the events of the death and resurrection of Christ. It's not, it can't be myth. <laughs> that theory is very deeply problematic. So you're starting to get what we're saying? When you start, can't be the swoon, can't be, the, can't be a hallucination, can't be, uh, um, it can't be a conspiracy, and it certainly ain't a myth. Oh my gosh, this is history. We're dealing with history. We're dealing with evidence, and the evidence is pointing to maybe this actually happened. Hmm. Not by, f this is the part, I'm not giving you by faith. I'm telling you what the scholars say, okay? Now let's get to the faith part. Part three, let me close out my message. Um, the resurrection is power. The meaning of the resurrection. You do not believe, if you are a Christian and believe in Jesus through the gospel, you don't believe in wishful thinking. You know what you believe in? You believe in something objective and real. You know what the resurrection is? The resurrection is not just Jesus, a guy, died, and then he rose again from the dead. That's not, that's resuscitation. <laughs> Other people died and then rose from the dead. 
but then they died again. They live life kind of like what we live. But Jesus rose to an eternal life where he couldn't die again. That's our hope. That's our gift. That's what's being given to us. That's what we believe, everything that we believe in. That's why it says here, if it didn't really happen, then what we believe is you, what you believe is in vain. What we preach is in vain. That's exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's nonsense. It's vanity. It's futile. But it's not. It happened in history. It's real. The basis of what you believe is unbelievably real. And what you're going to be given is real. And I want to close my message this way. Let me put that, put that quote up there. This is from um, C.S. Lewis. The resurrection changes things. Why? Because when you put hope, a real hope, not wishful thinking, when real hope enters into the world, it starts changing things. This is the way Lewis put it. This is from Mere Christianity. And um, I have uh, thought about this and thought about this and thought about this. It's an incredible claim. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. See it? (laughs) Even back in the 40s and 50s, they thought it was wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, hope is one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade. You know why we don't have slavery around the world? Because Christians rested their life on the resurrection hope that the world can be changed according to eternity. All these people left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were preoccupied with heaven. And heaven means resurrection. Not some wishful thinking place up there, but a real place based upon a real life that actually walked the earth. A real resurrection. Heaven actually walked the earth. That's what Easter is. Heaven Broken to history. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at resurrection. Let me put it that way. Aim at the real hope, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Brothers and sisters, every day should be Easter Sunday for you. Every day should be Resurrection Day. This is your hope. It's not how good-looking you are. It's not what college you get into. It's not even your health. It's not even whether you live and die. Because you know why? Because a resurrection life came in to defeat death and sin. Sin and death is done. It's gone. It's defeated. For you and me who believe in the gospel, we have resurrection life Death is done. And you know what that means for the rest of our life? All the people who have death still and sin still over them, every time somebody takes your time and your money, you're impatient because your life is just yours and your life can last 50, 60, or 70, or 100 years at best. And then you're impatient because everything has to be about you because you have scarcity of life. But if you are resurrection life, Jesus, heavenly, real hope life, you have no scarcity of life. You have life eternal. 
even if you die, because death is nothing. <laughs> everything you do in this life will be for eternity, and everything you do here is worth it. You know why? So then you can be patient with the person who's stupid. <laughs> you can give your money away because money is nothing. You can even give up your life because you can't ever really lose your life. That's Easter. That's what this is about. Because of what Jesus has done for us, it happened of first importance. Make what's first important in your life live every single day. And you and I will change everything. Because that's what God is intending to do through Easter. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I was supposed to go shorter. <laughs> we're going to praise you. <laughs> we're going to praise Jesus, and we're going to celebrate that death is done for us. And so help us to live like the people who changed all of Europe in the Middle Ages, people who killed off slavery because we live in resurrection hope, real hope. And real hope was broken into the here and the now into history. We love you. We honor you. Let us celebrate you now in Jesus' name. Amen.